Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a native of Northern Virginia. Father Andrew Fisher attended Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where he earned his master's degrees in both divinity and church history. He was ordained to the priesthood on May 16th, 1998. In addition to serving as parochial vicar at St. William of York, Queen of Apostles, and the Cathedral of St. Thomas More, Father Fisher also served for six years as the Director of Liturgy at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. Since 2011, he has served as pastor at St. Ambrose. Father Fisher has spoken several times on topics of church history at Lighthouse Media, the National Homeschool Conference, EWTN, Catholic Radio, but most importantly, here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming back Father Andrew Fisher. Thank you very much. Today is Pentecost, so let us start with a prayer, asking for blessings through the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here tonight. Again, as you heard, it's an honor for me to come back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. They are a blessing. As a pastor who's had them come speak at my parish, St. Ambrose, many times, I know many graces come. So please support the ICC. Please keep them in your prayers. They truly are a blessing to our diocese and to the church. I have to begin by saying I'm a little biased. Tonight is a really great topic. I'm sure every speaker says that, but you can trust a priest. I'm being honest here. When we think of the Catholic faith in Ireland, of course, we think of St. Patrick, who arrived as a newly consecrated bishop in about 432 and traveled the nation there preaching until his death in 461. So St. Patrick did about 29 years of missionary work planting seeds. Ah, but tonight we will look at those holy men and women who took up the torch of faith passed to them by St. Patrick. If he planted seeds... Tonight we see how the seeds sprung and grew to an incredible generation of Irish apostles, preachers, catechists, and apologists. These saints are a necessary and sadly often overlooked piece of the story of the Catholic faith in Ireland. So tonight I want to do three things. First, I'd like to introduce you to some saints. I think it's important we have friends in heaven, isn't it? Saints can teach us by their words and deeds. The saints teach us to love Christ, the truth of the gospel, and the power of grace. I hope tonight maybe you'll hear about a new saint you had not heard before, maybe feel a connection to them, or rekindle a relationship with another saint perhaps you know. 
You may forget my jokes and stories tonight, and that's okay. But please do not forget the faith and holiness of the saints that we will talk about. Secondly, I want to make sure I introduce you to a fascinating chapter in Irish history. Now, many people are students of Irish history and culture. That's why you're here tonight. Many people have traced their family genealogy back to Ireland. Many have read books in Irish history, know Irish songs, have been on pilgrimage to Ireland, drink Guinness, or at least root for Notre Dame football. There is a lot of Irish history and culture, but tonight I want to focus on one specific period of Irish history, and that is that time right after St. Patrick, when the faith was passed on to a new generation of men and women who received that faith, embraced it, and preached it with all they had, and Ireland's church grew in faith and holiness and numbers. Sadly, there's a move today in many places in Irish history and culture to make Irish history and culture just a secular celebration, or even a celebration of its ancient pagan days. We see this in the popularity of Celtic New Age spirituality. But it is impossible to understand Irish history and culture apart from its Catholic identity, its saints, its history, and its stories. Let me emphasize, impossible. If you want to know Ireland and Irish history and Irish culture, it is essential to know the Catholic faith in Ireland. Third and lastly tonight, I would like all of us to see the church's great mission of evangelization, because what took place in Ireland should take place in every part of the world. And that is, these are men and women who put the mandate of our Lord into practice. Go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They went to family and friends, neighbors and co-workers, strangers, and shared their Catholic faith. Many conversions followed. I hope this talk tonight and some of the stories that come with it will help all of us to go into the world and proclaim the gospel as well. Okay? So far so good. Still awake? Good. There's wine and cookies. I know if you fall asleep, don't worry. I'll wake you up. But tonight, let's get started. So a little bit of an introduction. What was Ireland like in this time period of about 400 to 600 A.D.? What were the common obstacles of Christian missionaries when they faced going through Ireland? What was the pagan culture like, a land filled with druids and magic and myths? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's why I'm here tonight. Well, let's get started with an introduction. First, the important piece of this period is that Ireland was not a part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire reached Britain and the lands to the north, Wales and Scotland. This fact plays a great role in putting Irish history and Irish missionary history into context. Christianity was spreading, although secretly, throughout the Roman Empire for three centuries. Although still legal, Roman soldiers, Roman employees, merchants, and officials moved throughout the Roman Empire and even to the edges of the empire, bringing the Catholic faith with them, although still in secret. In 313, with the Edict of Milan, Christianity was legalized, practiced openly, and soon became the official religion of the empire. Thus, Christianity covered the entire Roman Empire, including Great Britain, but not in Ireland, a land with no Roman settlements or culture. Remember that St. Patrick was born and raised as a Christian in Britain or Wales. He did not learn Christianity in Ireland. He was not Irish to begin with. He knew it from his family who had been part of the Roman government in Britain. His dad was a government employee in the Roman Empire. Ireland remained 
a highly decentralized tribal society, local kings that practice paganism, nature worship and witchcraft run by local druids. Bishop Palladius, the first Christian missionary, came to Ireland in the 400s. The first missionary, Palladius, was a priest from a Roman noble family serving in Gaul, modern-day France, who had been for a while serving as a deacon and advisor to the Pope in Rome. In 431, Pope Celestine I consecrated him a bishop and sent him to evangelize the people of Ireland beyond the walls of the Roman Empire. Now, records show that his first missionary work was in Scotland. Maybe maps weren't so good back then. But later he went to his mission in Ireland. In Ireland, he was something of a mendicant. He went around preaching and teaching, but rather than staying in one area and building up the local church, since he was the first to preach the gospel, he traveled as far and frequently as he could. He literally walked across the island preaching. Sadly, this means he had limited success and found the local tribes hard to convert. So, not being a part of the Roman citizens and settlements, the people of Ireland were not exposed first and secret and then publicly to Christianity. And the first missionary bishop, Palladius, when he went, did not meet with great success. A part of this was that Ireland was an island covered with mountains, lakes, and green fields. Rather than large cities like today, most of the interior of the island was filled with small villages gathered around the local chief and his family. Many people were simple peasants, farmers, fishermen, and shepherds. Among the coast, there were some villages whose population would swell when the fishing season was over, or when sailors or Vikings would choose to make that their home during the months of bad weather. There were small dirt roads that connected the villages in the interior, but these were just dirt paths made over time by people walking these dirt roads. Sadly, these roads were usually wiped out at certain parts of the year with rain or bad weather. Also, the remote roads and dirt paths were filled with robbers and danger. Now remember that Ireland was not a Roman settlement as Britain or France, so the Roman engineers never built in Ireland nice bridges, roads, walls, aqueducts, or fortifications as they did in other places. Ireland was rustic with dirt paths that easily could disappear in the wrong weather. Simply put, there was only one way to be a missionary in Ireland, on foot. Walking dirt roads over mountains with no maps. Many of the saints we'll talk about this time are pictured in art, whether it be prayer cards, stained glass windows, representations, dressed with walking sticks and sandals and rain cloaks and hats, and sometimes a clamshell or a small fruit, a gourd, hollowed out as a canteen for the journey. I'll show you one such book, 20 Tales of Irish Saints. What do the saints look like? Walkers. Walkers. If you wanted to be a missionary, you had to walk. In fact, I look at the image and think of people who walk the Camino of Santiago in Spain. It was a long walk. You're going to be a missionary in Ireland. This was not a time of watching EWTN, reading books from Ignatius Press, watching Bishop Barron on YouTube, or even the Institute of Catholic Culture. These were times for the gospel to be brought by feet. In fact, that's why our talk tonight is St. Columkill and the Pilgrims for Christ. These were pilgrims who walked village to village. It helps us understand the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Blessed are the feet that bring salvation. 
Another part of introduction is politics. There's an old saying, so goes the king, so goes the nation or the people. When missionaries arrived in the village, they wouldn't go door to door and knock and try and hold a catechism class. Instead, they targeted the king and the royal family for conversion. If a missionary could baptize the king, then the missionary had permission to preach and baptize all the people of the kingdom. Upon arrival, missionaries would go to the main hall or meeting house in the village compound and speak with the chief and advisors, the town elders, over a meal. They say today you shouldn't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table. But back then, that was the only way to be a missionary. And many of our stories will incorporate that. Often the local Druid priest would be there as well. And they would have a debate, a Q&A. And if you won the king, you won the village. If you lost the king and the Druid priest, you might be eating your last supper. These were indeed missionaries who took their job seriously and knew there were grave consequences if they didn't answer the oral exam well. Without a tradition of centralized or written Roman law in Ireland and politics, each tribe was independent and each king could make up his own laws. For this reason, each local tribal society had to be evangelized uniquely and independently. No king or kingdom was the same. And so the Irish missionaries we talk about tonight literally had to walk and beg to meet with the king and do their homework and know the needs of that kingdom and preach the gospel there. What was education like in the day? The answer is very little. In the period of Irish history we're talking about at this time, most were illiterate, even the kings and even the Druid priests. Remember, the Romans had not been there, so there was not an emphasis on formal education in math, science, reading, or writing. Christian missionaries, for the most part, relied on local Irish culture to assist them in their evangelization. I'll give you two examples. First is the use of symbols. St. Patrick used the shamrock to explain the Trinity, or the dove to explain the Holy Spirit, or the shepherd to explain Jesus in the church. It was a time that missionaries first built Celtic crosses that we see throughout Ireland. These tall crosses that used pictures to explain Bible stories and the life of Christ. Think of the Book of Kells. The Book of Kells is the most famous scripture book in all of Irish history with symbols that il- illustrate the words and teachings of Christ next to him. It was not until the later Middle Ages with the rise of guilds and artist schools, that statues and stained glass windows would come to common use. The other example of Irish missionaries using evangelization through these times were by poems and stories and hymns. It makes sense. We still do that today. How do you learn your ABCs? They teach you a song in grade school. I won't sing it tonight. But you know the song. How do you learn? You learn by hymns and poetry. Remember that most legends about saints are not fairy tales or myth. They're actually stories based on truth with some degree of historicity that's been passed down and codified over centuries. Some of the stories I'll tell tonight about the saints literally can be traced back to the time and place those saints lived and preached, and they were memorized and passed on. Have no doubt, evangelization is done around the campfire, around the dinner table. This would have been important to children and families who had no formal education. So the missionaries would have told these stories or taught them hymns and poetry. Tonight I'll share some of these ancient stories and legends passed down about the saints and the Catholic faith. They really are the catechism, right? Illustrated 
with beautiful stories and images. What's the old saying? Ireland is the land of saints and scholars, right? They were taught the faith, and they were taught it in many ways. One last piece of introduction before we start talking about specifics, and that is the unique role of monasticism at this point in the evangelization of Ireland. In this time period of Ireland, there were no Catholic colleges, seminaries, there was no ICC, no RCI class, no EWTN. In fact, there weren't even local parishes. Oh my goodness. Remember, the first bishop to Ireland in the early 400s was something of a mendicant who did not really establish permanent buildings or communities. However, Patrick did something when he arrived in Ireland that his predecessor did not do. Patrick fostered the rise of monasticism. As a bishop, St. Patrick founded not just church buildings where worship took place, he founded centers of worship and learning that today we call monasteries. When St. Patrick would establish a local church, the priest ordained for that church stayed in that particular place, living a life of prayer and study, and then brought people around him. And there they began to live the same lifestyle he did. By the 400s and 500s, Irish bishops and clergy did not follow the mendicant tradition that had previously existed. Rather, they opened monastic schools, centers, and places of worship. Why is this important? To be honest, this was taking place at the same time in Britain. By the late 500s, monks, based on the rule of St. Benedict, had already opened monastic houses and schools to catechize the people of Britain. Even today, many elite schools in England carry the names that go back to the founding of their schools as monastic communities. Remember also that up until King Henry VIII, the Catholic Church in the 1500s, the mother church for all Catholics in London was a Benedictine abbey known as Westminster Abbey. It was the monastic schools that really fostered life and piety and learning. It was so in Britain and it was so in Ireland, thanks to St. Patrick. Why is monastic life so important specifically for missionaries? Well, in a land with no schools or universities, monasteries became centers of learning for for clerics and laity, for men and women, for the young and the old, for the baptized, and for the catechumens, those preparing for baptism. All were welcome. All would come, and not just celebrate the Eucharist, but all would come and hear the Benedictine monks or the other monastic traditions preaching and teaching and holding classes. Rather than just going to Mass, they would attend classes. The formation of the Irish people at this time was rooted in solid Catholic doctrine. Remember, the monks could read and write Latin and Greek. You had the best of teachers at these these monasteries. They would copy the Bible by hand. They would read the Liturgy of the Hours and chant it. They would read music for Mass and for the praying of the Liturgy of the Hours. Monasteries also became de facto seminaries. For the local clergy and future missionaries, you had no place to go but to the monastery. So they would seek out and be taught by the monks, and they would be taught a sense of faith and piety and learning and discipline, a rule of life. So the monks would teach them to be priests and missionaries. Why is this important? Because monks make monks. As the missionaries went out at that time, following the example of St. Patrick preaching and teaching, when the monks preached and taught and people came forward, what did the monks do? 
they opened new monasteries because that's all they knew. And so monks would be sent out to preach and teach, form centers of learning and worship, and then they would turn into monastic centers as well. Most early missionaries in Ireland wanted to open schools to catechize their converts, not just to preach to them, but to also teach them how to pray, liturgy of the hours, how to live piety in a disciplined life, as the monks did. As we'll see, the first Irish missionaries opened monastic schools, not parish churches, cathedrals, and universities. Monasteries are intellectual. These early missionaries brought to Ireland a Catholic faith that was theological, thoughtful, and intellectual, not emotional and fuzzy. The Irish folk who were converted were taught how to know and defend the faith. This is far different from the Druids, whose faith was emotional, myth, and magic, with no substance or depth. Educated monks taught clear doctrine and catechism. We can see here and understand why Ireland was called the land of saints and scholars. Monasteries were based on a Catholic style of living called culture. Monks had a daily schedule of prayer and mass, regular confession, periods of fasting, spiritual direction, and an organized calendar of feast days and pilgrimages. This is what they taught the first converts. The missionaries taught the people of Ireland not just a faith, but a Catholic culture. In short, the Irish people had been followers of Druids whose religion was seasonal. They would pray during the winter solstice or summer solstice, and that was it. Or the Druids taught a religion that was emotional. Well, we won't pray or do sacrifice unless there's a storm or famine. Then we better appease the gods. Or it was without organized doctrine. There was no universal catechism for Druids. Every Jew had made up their own catechism. And so now the converts in Ireland are being taught to pray every day. We're being taught the beautiful calendar of the church. We're being taught devotions to Our Lady and the saints. We're being taught devotion to the Eucharist every day. What a difference between the Druid theology and the catechism being taught by Irish monasteries. Lastly, monasticism was important to Irish evangelization because it provided clear leadership and a hierarchy. Each monastery had an abbot. That's the leader in Latin, Abba, right? The Abba, the father of the monastery, the abbot. You had priests, deacons, professed brothers, you had monks, and you had third-order laity and the lay people that associated themselves with the monastery. The Druids had no clear leadership, no line of election, no succession, and often they were independent. There was no union or diocese of local Druids. So monks provided the infant church in Ireland with instant organization and hierarchy, the sacrament of holy orders. Please note that many of the first missionaries and bishops in Ireland were abbots because they had been doing the job of bishop without the title bishop. They had been overseeing the laity and clergy in a particular area and caring for their pastoral needs. Now, shall we move on to the saints? Good. Still awake? All right. Well, first, St. Commonkill. We have to begin with him. It's named after him tonight, right? Around the time that Patrick was taken as a slave to Ireland, Commonkill was born in December of 521 in Gartan, County Donegal. His name in Gaelic comes from two words, column, which means dove, and kill, which means to the churches. His name in Latin, and most church documents actually, is St. Columba. So now you know the two are the same. He came from a line of kings who had ruled in Ireland for six centuries, and he himself was in succession to the throne. 
At around a young age, about the age of six, he was entrusted to the care of a Christian priest for education, but was so moved by the faith, he chose to enter a monastery and study there, Clonard, the home of St. Finian. The holiness of this saint and abbot convicted him to become a monk himself and renounce all of his royal titles. He devoted himself to prayer and study, programs of evangelization. He went through Ireland preaching and teaching with great success, and by the age of 25, he had opened 27 monasteries. Imagine that, including Derry, Duro, and Kells. As Bibles were scarce in those days, Commonkill spent often the night his free time by candlelight copying Bibles. One sad story is that while visiting a monastery in Moville, Commonkill spent the night copying a Bible and was seen by a monk of that monastery through a keyhole who thought he was trying to steal the Bibles. The next morning he was turned into the abbot who believed his own monk and told Commonkill not only to turn over the Bible he had been using, but the Bible that he had been writing. In those days, Bibles were great works of art. They were priceless. And under protest, Commonkill returned both copies of the abbot and was exiled from the area. Soon a dispute broke out about Commonkill among the people who knew him and loved him so much. And actually a riot broke out and many people got hurt and even some fatalities. For this, Commonkill was heartbroken and he was told he'd have to leave Ireland. He left him brokenhearted. In 563, St. Commonkill and 12 Companions crossed the Irish Sea in a small boat, made their home on the deserted island off Scotland, known today as Iona, which translates in Gaelic as Holy Island. They formed a monastery, students came from all over, and he taught hundreds of missionaries and future saints who would go on to convert Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. The monastery at Iona truly became the heart of Celtic Christianity and evangelization. From Iona, Commonkill would often go to Scotland preaching and teaching, and many churches and monasteries throughout Scotland claim him as their founder. He first established a monastery in the region of Rigil, where he converted the king and anointed him as the Christian chief of all of Scotland. His name is King Aidan of Argyll. And the anointing and the blessing of this first Christian king took place on a large boulder. It became known as the Stone of Scones, or the Stone of Destiny. It's a small footnote to history that was later taken to England. And whenever the monarch, the ruling monarch of England, the king or queen, is anointed and takes possession, it takes place in a throne that is over top of that stone. If you go to Westminster Abbey, you can see that stone. But remember, before anyone else, the, the Christian king of Scotland was anointed by St. Commonkill on that rock. The other footnote to history is that in his travels throughout Scotland, Commonkill is known to have preached and taught, similar to St. Francis, to anyone, even the animals. There's a famous story and artwork about St. Commonkill that one lake he went to was troubled by large monsters, unknown creatures, and he blessed the lake and it stopped. And it stopped when the head of the creature appeared and disappeared into the water. Can you guess the name of that lake? Loch Ness. Yes, very good. All right. There are two short stories about St. Commonkill in Ireland. First, when preaching in one of the islands off Ireland, he encountered a king who had a young girl who was Irish as a slave. He said, you must set the girl free. She is a Christian. And the king refused. And finally, Commonkill left. But soon he got word from the king that the king was sick and dying and demanded Commonkill to pray over him and heal him. And he sent a letter back saying, only when you set free the Irish slave. And he got no response. Until a month later, when he was on his deathbed, he said, all right, come and take the slave. 
So Kamenkil went back, prayed over him, cured him, and brought the Irish girl back safely to Ireland. In 597, at the age of seven, at 77, St. Kamenkil was given a message from God. He was close to death. He toured his monastery and all the local families, saying goodbye to them. And while praying outside of his monastery, Iona, it was said a white stallion appeared and came and sat down next to him. It was a vision that he would soon be taken to the glory of heaven. He went back inside and prayed, and he died there at the altar and was buried at the altar. One of his students and traveling companions who wrote a biography of St. Commonkill said, quote, He was a man with the face of an angel, excellent in virtue, polished in speech, holy in deed, great in counsel, and loving towards all. It's quite an obituary. St. Bridget. St. Bridget. St. Patrick, Bridget, and Commonkill are the three jewels in the crown of Ireland, they say. And most families who are Irish have a daughter sooner or later named Bridget. Ironically, in the mid-20th century, there was something of debate whether St. Bridget was a real person. Some scholars proposed that perhaps Bridget just had the same name or a similar name to a pre-Celtic pagan goddess. And some of the miracles attributed to her sounded like some of those pagan stories. However, within a few years of her death in 525, there are at least eight biographies of St. Bridget in Ireland written by people that knew her, that testified to her holy life. So in all the works, the names of people and all these biographies, they're all historically accurate. So history falls in the favor of St. Bridget. I do not want to be there on Judgment Day when St. Bridget, St. Christopher, and others are introduced to the theologians or historians that say they never existed. I'm going to stand back on that day. According to tradition, Bridget was born in 451, north of Dundalk. Her mother was a slave working for a local Druid priest. The mother was baptized by St. Patrick, renounced the Druids, purchased her freedom, and married the chief of the local area. And so that became Bridget's father. During this time, there was a great famine and poverty, and food was short, and the Druid priests offered food to the infant Bridget. And every time her mother put the pagan food blessed by the Druid priest in her mouth, she would spit it back out. Symbolic. She would accept nothing into her body or soul that was not of Jesus Christ. According to other traditions, she grew up in poverty, and as a child she worked miracles, even giving away food and clothing to those who were less fortunate. In 468, at the age of 19, Bridget received permission from her family and the local clergy to become a religious. She made her profession and was veiled by St. Makal at the convent at Mog Tulak. She was known for holiness and wisdom, and upon her profession or consecration as religious, the local bishop also named her the abbess of the convent. Your first day in religious life, you're in charge, and also with jurisdiction of all other convents in the area. It certainly spoke about her learning. In 480, she founded a new convent for women in Kildare, Kildara, which translates as the Church of the Oak. It was on the site of a pagan shrine to a Celtic goddess. And it was there this goddess lived with other women, caring for the great oak. And many people think maybe that's why people make an association or try to claim that was the confusion. The convent of Kildare became a center of religion, art, and music for Christian men and women, and many great female saints traced their conversions back to Bridget and the convent of Kildare. Bridget left the convent often to travel throughout Ireland and found new monasteries. She was frequently consulted by bishops and abbots for spiritual direction and even played a role in naming them. She was also known to be rather feisty like St. Catherine of Siena and had no issue speaking her mind. 
One famous story is that Bridget was visited by a young man who wanted to consult her on his way to the monastery. He was later known as St. Fimian. After a meeting, Bridget gave the young man a precious golden ring and said, hold on to this. You will need this. He said, Bridget, I'm going to a monastery to take a vow of poverty. I don't need this. She said, don't argue with me. And he walked away saying, this is all temptation. I must renounce all precious things, become a monk. About a day later, he's in the woods on his way to the monastery. He reaches in his pocket and guess what he finds? The precious gold ring. Bridget duped him. And when he wasn't looking, she put it in his pocket. As he was kneeling there in prayer, trying to figure out what to do, betrayed by St. Bridget, he heard a woman crying in the woods and he went over to her. And she said, I feel called to enter the convent. But the problem is my convent wants a dowry. My convent wants me to make a donation to cover my expenses there. And my family is poor. I have nothing to give. (laughs) They walk into the village. He pulls out the ring. They put it in the little measuring cup. And it's worth the exact amount of the dowry needed. Always trust an Irish nun, right? St. Bridget died at her convent in Kildare in 525. February 1st is her feast day. St. Nindid, who is the priest chaplain of the convent, later told the monks at the neighboring convent that when I die, you should cut off my right hand and put it under glass as a relic because this is the hand that gave the last rites to one of the greatest saints in all of Ireland. St. Kevin of Glendalough. He was the founder and first abbot of Glendalough in County Wicklow. His feast day is June 3rd. There are few biographies of St. Kevin, but many legends. As the St. Commonkill tradition states that Kevin was a family of noble birth, he was the son of Common and Comel, the king and queen of Leinster. He was born in 498 and given the name Kevin, which in Gaelic Comegan translates as beautiful birth. It was a legend he was born without causing his mother any labor pains. In fact, they say that is the fulfillment of a prophecy St. Patrick made that one day the area around what would be Dublin would be converted by a holy man who had a holy birth. He was baptized by St. Cronin and educated by St. Petrock of Cornwell and later became a hermit who spent all his days and nights in scripture study. However, when he went to live with other monks, people began hearing a reputation of his holiness and they came in large numbers. That's a problem for hermits. As a young man, Kevin went to Wicklow and studied intensely theology from his uncle, who was the local bishop, ordained a priest, and then led by an angel to a small cave called Glendalough, which is the area between two locks, the glen between two rivers. Today it's known as Kevin's Bed. You can still visit it. His reputation for holiness spread, and Kevin drew a large congregation for all his talks he gave. The people who witnessed it said that He lived in tense poverty, was always barefoot, and ate only what was provided from the fruit of the trees nearby his his cave. He taught the others a strict monastic life and even composed prayers. In fact, sometimes he's pictured with a harp. One story is that St. Kevin was very handsome and that one day a woman named Kathleen, a beautiful maiden, began to chase after him. The legend says she had unholy blue eyes. I don't know what that means, but I probably shouldn't ponder that. (laughs) One day while praying, he got a premonition that she was sneaking up behind him in the woods. He quickly threw himself on top of a briar patch and grabbed poison ivy and chased her out of the woods. Later, she apologized and entered a convent herself. 
He was known as a miracle worker who worked incredible miracles, oftentimes converting criminals, helping animals who were sick or dying, and even restoring a king's elderly goose on the goose's deathbed back to life. As long as the eggs laid would be given to the monastery, so they give it to the poor. He blessed the goose. It came back to good goose health. And for decades later, the goose who laid every egg was given to the monastery, and the monks would give it out to the poor. Kevin made his home in this small cave, and thousands came. And the monks he taught there at Glendalough became known as the missionaries to all of Ireland and the world. He died in 618, was buried in his monastery. Some stories say that he lived to be almost 100 years old. And his feast day, June 3rd, was actually a day of pilgrimage and holiness for all of Ireland. Sadly, his monastery was destroyed by invading armies in the 1300s, but it was with the suppression of the Catholic Church under King Henry VIII that both his feast day and pilgrimages there were banned. Several years ago, I went on a pilgrimage with another priest to Glendalough to see St. Kevin's house and bed. It's now a public park with just ruins. Our tour guide says it's a public park and priests can't say Mass here, but if you want, I'll tell you who can help you say Mass anytime here, Father. So the faith is still alive in Glendalough. I want to go quickly through a few more saints. I could be here all night, but you understand the theme here. These were abbots and abbesses who learned the faith and opened not just churches, but schools of catechism and Catholic culture. St. Finian was born in 470 in the village of Myshall in County Wicklow, while St. Patrick was still preaching. At a young age, he went all the way to Rome, something unheard of at the time, and entered a monastery in Lyon, France. It was there he was ordained and returned to Ireland as a monk. An angel led him to a small clearing called Clonard along the River Boyne in County Meath, and there he built a clay hut, and he lived a life of piety, prayer, and penance. However, his reputation spread, and soon he had 3,000 monks under his tutelage. Can you imagine what began as a small hut turned into a monastic village? And some of the books that he wrote on the spiritual life are still preserved there. He died of the plague in 549, about 50 years old, and his burial place became a place of pilgrimage. He is known as the father of Irish monasticism. So many monks were trained there who themselves opened up monasteries. He is the patron saint of County Meath, and his sister, St. Regnog, became a nun and abbess herself near Bangor, which opened a school for women in the faith. His feast day is December the 12th. St. Finbar. He was born in Galway in 550. His name at birth was Lone, but he entered the monastery as a young man for education, but stayed to become a priest. As part of a monk's formation, he received tonsure. You kneel down, and the bishop would cut off part of your hair. Well, when he knelt down, the bishop made a joke about the light color of his hair, and publicly called him the whitehead, or the light-haired one, which in Gaelic is pronounced Finbara. And so that became his name, Finbar, the light-haired one. After completing his monastery school, he re- went to a remote island called Loch Eric. He formed a monastery, became an abbot, which is now the abbey and the diocese of Cork. He soon became the bishop of Cork and oversaw the building of all the Catholic programs in Cork. He died in 623. He is the patron saint of Cork, and the cathedrals there is named for him. His feast day is September 25th. The motto of the University of Cork is, where Finbar taught, let the people learn, Munster and all of South Ireland. 
As a small footnote, the original cathedral in Charleston, South Carolina, was named St. Finbar's, but it burned during the city's great fire during the Civil War. The rebuilt cathedral today is named after St. John the Baptist, but the first bishop of the Diocese of Charleston, South Carolina, was Bishop John England, who was from Cork, and consecrated bishop in the Cathedral of Cork, named after St. Finbar. So that's why he named his first cathedral St. Finbar. St. Flannan, born the only son of the king of County Clare, the king of Thormond. He was raised to be the next king of the tribe, but as a young man sent to be tutored by the monks, fell in love with the faith, and entered the abbey at Killaloe in County Clare. After his studies, he with other monks were sent on a pilgrimage to Rome. They had an audience with Pope John IV. He asked them about the state of the Catholic Church in Ireland, and they elected this saint, this monk, to be the spokesperson. The Pope, John IV, John IV, was so impressed at the thoughtful answers and zeal, he decided to make him a bishop the next day. And so the young monk went on a pilgrimage. Now we go to Rome on pilgrimage, and we visit the gift shop, come back with some nice things, but he went to Rome on a pilgrimage and came back a bishop. In fact, he went back and became the first bishop of the Diocese of Killaloe, where his abbey was. His example of holiness and love of the Eucharist was so powerful, it converted his father, the king of the local tribe, who renounced his throne and was a widower at the time, and he entered the monastery his son was in charge of. St. Flannan performed many miracles and is the patron saint of County Clare and Limerick. His feast day is December 18th. St. Moby of Clarenec was born in 554 in Glasnevin near Dublin. He was a relative of St. Bridget. His name in Gaelic means flat face. Doesn't sound very good. One tradition is when he was born, he had a birth defect in the faith. But tradition is when he got baptized, the waters of baptism washed it away, and he's restored to health. He entered the monastery at Glasnevin and became a teacher of missionaries, sometimes graduating a hundred monks every year. Despite weather and plagues, he also traveled the area. He taught St. Commonkill and encouraged him to open more missionaries and more mission work. Several students wrote of the harsh conditions of that monastery and remembered him walking in the snow back and forth to give different talks because he never wanted to miss out forming the people in their faith. He died in 544. His feast day is October 12th. I have time for two or three more. Is that okay? I could be here all night. And believe me, I have many stories. I'm Irish too. St. Kieran of Cloyne McNoise. St. Kieran was born in 516 in Roscommon, the son of a carpenter who became a student under St. Finian at Clonard Monastery. In fact, he was the top student. And St. Commonkill, meeting him, once wrote, This young monk is a lamp burning bright with faith and wisdom. There's a story that St. Kiernan, as a young monk, was supposed to bring a copy of the Gospel of Matthew to give an exam in class. However, he was so busy starting at the last minute that when he arrived, he only had half the Gospel with him. Remember, the books weren't bound. They were pages of parchment. And when he got up, the other monks teased him, as young classmates would do. And so they began calling him Kiernan, half Matthew. So he had half a gospel. However, when he finished the exam and got the, the top grade, he turned to his brother monks with a smile and said, Call me what you want, but I'll call myself Kiernan, half Ireland, because I will convert half the nation and leave the other half for you all to convert. He went to a monastery in central Ireland and was there dismissed from being too generous to the poor. Don't you hate when monks and nuns are too generous to the poor? 
He gave away everything he had. I have to ask when I read that, what do monks really have? He gave away all he had. So devoted was he. In 544, eight companions and he went to the banks of the river Shannon and formed a monastery called Cloyne McNoise. It became one of the most important schools of Irish culture because it was right in the middle of Ireland. It was located in the center. At times, several thousand monks were there. And although it was destroyed by the Vikings, people still went on pilgrimage there and prayed there because of the holiness of what had taken place. Although the Catholic Church was suppressed during the Reformation, it never forgot Cloyne McNoise. And when Pope John Paul II made his historic visit to Ireland in September of 1979, he celebrated Mass in the ruins of this monastery with several thousand people. Let me land the plane here. And that is, I used to work for many years at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. I hope you've all been there. Every chapel is dedicated to a different devotion to Our Lady and a gift from a different religious order or ethnic group. One of my favorites is the Irish Chapel in the very upper church. Walk through the front doors and turn left, and there it is. There it shows on the wall, carved in green marble, an outline of Ireland. And in it are little Celtic crosses for all the abbeys or monasteries founded by St. Patrick. And it was there he founded them as schools of learning where they would know Christ and his holy church. And then in this beautiful etching, you see boats sailing away from Ireland with huge sails. And on the sails are crosses showing that all the abbots and monasteries not only formed the people in the Catholic faith in Ireland, but then they went as missionaries to all the ends of the earth. Tonight we have seen firsthand that the gospel preached by Patrick and others were not lost. The seeds they sowed in Ireland grew and bore fruit. These are holy seeds. We call them saints and missionaries. We call them catechists and holy laypeople. Each of their stories is the story of the gospel being preached on dirt roads, in small village huts, in monasteries, preaching and converting all that would listen, even kings and Druids. History speaks of 12 apostles in Ireland, but there are more than 12 apostles. We've talked tonight about many, and I could go on for much, much longer. As Americans, we also see the faith passed down from Patrick to those first saints and missionaries was passed down to their ancestors and later brought here to us in the United States. Many proud Irish are here tonight, knowing that our faith was passed down by ordinary men and women who loved their Catholic faith and were faithful to it. When immigrants came to the U.S. in the 18-1900s, they came as the poorest immigrants in the world, but they were rich because they had their Catholic faith. They knew their Catholic prayers. They truly were Irish saints and scholars. The Catholic faith is priceless, and they were gifts given by St. Commonkill, Bridget, Karen, and many others. Tonight, I've shared with you some of their stories. I hope they're stories you remember. I hope there are saints that you will pray to and seek their intercessions. I hope also that all of us can understand today that God uses the most ordinary people to be missionaries. And that means all of us. Let us learn from these saints and missionaries tonight that no matter where we are or where we go, we are called to make our homes and our parishes centers and schools of the Catholic faith. For is it in homes and parishes that we should really sow the seeds of faith and see God bring about more saints and more missionaries? Lastly, let us also learn not to despair, not to give in to temptation when we face challenges in the church. 
we must never forget the example of boldness and fidelity and zeal that these saints give us. They faced armies, druids, pagans, storms, famines, floods, and even lacking of churches to meet at. All they had is their faith, and with that faith they converted Ireland. Let them help us to face challenging times with faith and confidence. Let us be bold and faithful so that we too can help convert the minds and hearts and cultures of those that God puts into our life. Amen. St. Patrick and all the saints of Ireland, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Father, thank you. We speak often of the blood of martyrs being the seed of uh, saints. To what degree did martyrdom play in the missionary work of these saints? No, they're very good. Oh, there's red martyrdom, the blood, and Pope Paul VI and other documents talk about white martyrdom, the sufferings they went through. So certainly we do know that the Druids and some of the kings were very hostile at first because this really was a a new movement taking away what would have been the socio-political, theological underpinning of them. If you didn't worship the sun god, who knows, your crops may not grow. So it really was a challenge to bring people to faith. There's a lot of suffering involved in that point of evangelization. I'd even add about the, the struggles, the white martyrdom of people leaving royal family lines and going to live off the berries in the woods or going on the rocky seas to Iona in order to get ordained and studied to come back as a missionary. There were great challenges. Or for all these missionaries going on foot, can you imagine a rainstorm or snow going to the mountains in the mist? There was a lot of challenges and difficulty, but they never gave up the faith. That was kind of one of the points I made, is the beauty of the Irish faith in this period is that they not only received it, they embraced it. They embraced it. In fact, uh, Father Benedict Rochelle gave a talk one time on Irish saints and I don't have the name off the top of my head, but it was a member of parliament that stood up in the 1800s as they were debating whether or not to relax uh, the suppression of the Catholic Church in Ireland. And this parliament member stood up in the 1800s and said to the rest of parliament, we have driven the Catholics back to the bogs. We have taken away their property and closed their churches and closed their schools. And what do we have to show for it except the most devout religious people in the world? Wow. So. Joe, back to your, your statement there. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Where the church is challenged, that's where it will get stronger. And I think that is our prayer for right now in certain, certain times and places in church history there are challenges. We're one of them right now. That this is a time of saints and apologists and catechists and new vocations. So yes, the, not only the blood, but the sweat and tears of the church bring great seed. Eileen's writing in from online. She says, do you think the fact that Ireland was never part of the Roman Empire, did that allow them to be evangelized easier, or was that more of a challenge? No, that was a very good point, Eileen. That was the point in my introduction there was that when they arrived, you had an island that had none of the the Roman uh, roads and bridges. You had none of the Roman schooling. It was a very much rugged Old West, shall we say. And they had to go out there and fight for every inch and every convert there was. 
So really, it made it a little more difficult because at least in other parts of Europe, you had the learning, you had the knowledge. And I was just talking with uh, my friends McManus's here that stop and think that when you went around Ireland, each kingdom was different, and some of them had their own dialects. And one of the beautiful things was that when they were brought to the monasteries as schools of religious formation, they were taught a common language called Latin. And so there in the schools of the monasteries, the converts are being taught Latin, and they learn to pray not as the people of this tribe or that tribe. They're learning to pray as the church in Ireland, Britain, Wales, France, Rome. So how beautiful that you had this new area of the world untouched by Christianity, now breathing fully and embracing it. So it's a little more difficult because the learning wasn't there and there wasn't the underpinning of Christianity. Because in the Roman Empire, it was there. It was just in secret. And then for a few years, it was legal. It was not that way in Ireland. Thank you, Father. We got a question from Bridget. So, Father, um, in light of the Feast of Pentecost, I was wondering, what is the, what is the difference between the, the sacred fire that St. Patrick lit on the, on the Hill of Slain versus the Druid's feast to their, uh, to their pagan, pagan gods in light of the second, of the second commandment. Um, you said not worship false, false gods before me. I understand that was, um, the false, the worship of the false gods was driven away from the Israelites. I was wondering, what is this difference between, um, driving out and, and versus the, the sacred fire, the Holy Spirit, Spirit and the Stuart's Feast, how is this all connected within the Easter and Pentecost stories of not just for us, but for the Irish as well? Very good. I'm proud to say that Bridget back there is from St. Ambrose Parish, so one of my sheep. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> and as I said, every good Irish family has a daughter named Bridget, so well done to your mom and dad. Uh, one of the great images in theology is light and dark, isn't it? At the Easter Vigil, there's darkness, and then the one candle, the Paschal candle, is brought in. And everyone takes their candle and lights it from the one source of light. It's symbolic of a world in darkness. Christ is the light who enters, and we're all enlightened by Christ. There's one source of truth and life, and that's Jesus Christ. We're all enlightened. It's a symbol of baptism, too, isn't it? When you're baptized, that Paschal candle is lit and entrusted to your parents and godparents, saying, your child has been enlightened. Of course, this is the famous story of St. Patrick preaching and teaching, and some of the Druids are having their own private prayer service. They're worshiping a great fire, the fire god, and no one else can light a fire. And Patrick goes up on the hill and celebrates the Easter Vigil. And they look up and say, on the hill there in the distance, they see a flame bigger and larger than any other light. That was Patrick with the light of Christ. So that is St. Patrick using images, as I talked about, in a culture that did not have a lot of literacy. So the Book of Kells, the paintings, the Celtic crosses, the illumination, the fire burning bright that Patrick lit. When you are trying to teach the faith to people, it's really important. You have those images, and that's a very powerful image, Bridget. I'll tell you one thing I do when I do baptisms, for example. When you go to anoint the baby with chrism oil on the head, it's a sign of the mark of God, the Holy Spirit being sealed upon this person for eternity. I always explain that the chrism oil is blessed by a bishop a direct success to the apostles who breathes on the oil and pours a perfume in it. So whenever it's used in the three sacraments that leave an indelible mark on the soul, 
baptism, confirmation, holy orders, you can smell it. The Holy Spirit is at work. And at that moment, after I anoint the baby, I always ask the family in the front row, can you smell the chrism? And they say yes. It's a powerful symbol because for people who don't have books of theology, those symbols are powerful. Bridget and I were talking uh, just a little bit ago, and we were saying, isn't it kind of interesting that you have the Druids and their pagan practice with fire? And then today, obviously the fire is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. We were wondering, um, you know, how are we supposed to understand the difference here? You've got the same material that is fire, and in one sense it's used in an idolatrous way. In, the ver- in another sense it's used as a very symbol of the Holy Spirit. We are wondering if you could talk a little bit on that. Sure. The Pentecost today, I'm sure you'll have wonderful homilies in all your parishes. My brother priests take good care of their people. The fire that came from heaven, the Holy Spirit, what an image. Fire usually burns and destroys, doesn't it? But the fire from heaven, the Holy Spirit, gave life. That's what we profess. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. In fact, if you look at images of the apostles, there's usually a little flame on their head. The fire didn't destroy. The fire illuminated. It enlightened. It gave life. And what else does fire do? It spreads. What beautiful image. The apostles received this flame of faith and then took it out into the streets. Quite often, there are images or things that were taken and transformed by Christians because people could see the symbolism being moved. Certainly in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings were anointed. And they did that because it would leave a stain on them. They'd pour the oil upon the head. It would come down on the beard or the the clothing. It stained them. It was a symbol of the stain on our soul, not stained in a bad way. The mark of God is placed on us, never to be washed away. So sometimes the images or the customs that went before, Christ could take and transform into the new covenant and the sacraments. I hope, does that help you there? Yes, thank you very much, Father Fisher. Thank you. All right. Round of applause, please. Thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you all for coming. Thanks, Andrew. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.